John Noster, the number one most influential health tech leader in the space. As we think, so we act. As we act, so we become. To me, what that means is the world is becoming a cognitive construct. And that cognitive partner is AI. This new transformative age of AI being likened to the second Big Bang. What does it mean to be human in this new age? Wow. John is a thinker, an innovator, a futurist, a philosopher. He has held an advisory role for the Google Health Board. So you mentioned fear is an obstacle to progression. What is your perspective on this and how we can overcome this fear of AI? Alvin Toffler said the illiterate of this century will not be those who cannot read or write. The illiterate of this century will be those who cannot unlearn and relearn. Humans and machines will dance together, but the question is, who leads? We may get to Ray Kurzweil's singularity. I think that we've passed it. Today's conversation isn't just about the future of healthcare, but rather it's about the future of humanity as a whole. Do you believe we're prepared to navigate this tipping point? No, we are in no man's land. The genie is out of the bottle, and that genie is AI. Welcome to Health Beyond Tomorrow. We are at a pivotal moment in history. We've seen over the last couple of years with the introduction of large language models like ChatGPT, how the world is completely transforming around us. Today's conversation isn't just about the future of healthcare or health technology or even AI in healthcare, but rather it's about the future of humanity as a whole. I have the absolute pleasure and I'm delighted to be sat down with someone who's ranked the number one most influential health tech leader in the space. His name, John Noster. John is a thinker, an innovator, a futurist, a philosopher. He has multiple hats. He has held an advisory role for the Google Health Board and there's no other person I'd rather be having this conversation with other than John. In this conversation, we discuss the role of AI in healthcare and specifically the symbiotic relationship AI will have with health professionals going forward. But this conversation isn't just about healthcare. We talk about what it means to be human in this new digital era. I first reached out to John a couple of weeks ago when I met him in London and he gave a fantastic talk. And one specific line that really stuck out with me was the fact he said, humans and machines will dance together. But the question is, who leads? This conversation is vital to make sure that humanity is prepared for this tipping point. As always, if you enjoy this episode, I ask you, please hit that follow button. Give the episode a like rating and share with as many people as possible. It helps the channel to grow and it means a lot to me and keeps me motivated to keep getting guests like John on the show. I start off this discussion by asking John if it's okay to cheat. And you might be thinking that's quite a strange question to ask or especially start off with. But the reason I asked that is because I specifically wanted to spark a discussion around the role of AI in academic and creative spaces. And so let me ask you, is the role of AI a tool for creation or is it a tool for cheating? Because one thing I've mentioned numerous times is that universities and academic institutions see these AI tools in education as a tool for cheating. I'm trying to change that narrative and I wanted to start off this podcast by asking John, is it okay to cheat? So let's get into this conversation. Let me start my answer with a question. Can you please tell me, Mr. Medical Student, what the first intermediate metabolic pathway is in the Krebs cycle? You're, you're, you're testing me there. Don't answer it. I don't want to make you look silly. But here's the point. Do you need to know that? What is the nature of cognitive lifting? It seems to me as this corpus of knowledge is expanding that we may have to reprioritize the way we learn, 
and the way we think and the way we process information because the ability of our brains to assimilate and process information is limited. What we're seeing is the antithesis of that with technology where it is functionally unlimited. So let's go to the question. Is it okay to cheat? Man, I mean, you know better than anybody if you're standing uh, doing rounds, right? And that poor medical student gets hit with that question. We call it pimping in the United States. It's called pimp rounds. And so I look down at you and I say quickly, what are the five reasons for ST segment elevation on EKG? Right now, most people get MI. Most people get maybe coronary vasospasm. Hardly anybody remembers early repolarization. Even fewer people know that it could be a sign of an underlying ventricular aneurysm. The question is, are we judged by our ability to memorize on act on that? And I want to answer this in two ways. One is it feels to me a bit unnecessary in certain instances. On the other hand, it feels extraordinarily important because we are often in a position where we have to act quickly. So the ability to act quickly, the ability to have that cognitive muscle strengthened may have its value. Now, let me come full circle. So given the importance of speed, what's the fastest person out there? It's GPT, right? It's actually technology. If you go back to artists like Vermeer, who did the girl with the pearl earring, this classically beautiful, painting that really it defines art in many ways. Allegedly, he used a special technique called a camera obscura and projected that image and then traced it. And let's go to Norman Rockwell, a famous American painter. He too used technology to create his art. And he used a machine called a Lucy. And he had a photographer. He actually hired a photographer who created a set. They got it just right. The photographer took the picture, then Rockwell took this image and projected and copied it, traced it, like coloring by numbers. In fact, his signature on these paintings is also a stencil. It's not spontaneous. And, and he said something very interesting. He said, the Lucy machine is the worst possible thing an artist could use, and I'd be lost without it. And I think that's the duality we see in medicine today, is that we rely on our cognitive skills and we rely on this human ability to react, but we have to realize that that is changing. And the smartest person in the, in the exam room is the doctor, right? They wear their stethoscope, not in their pocket. They usually wear it over their shoulders like a prayer shawl. They use it as a badge of identity and as a badge of authority. Now, I was going to say like a medal as well. Completely. It's a medal. And, and what I find is that the underlying psychodynamics are problematic because what we're saying is that the doctor is no longer the smartest person in the room. So think about that. So is it okay to cheat? We've been cheating all along. And I think that ultimately we are going to have this augmented presence where technology will push us along to places where we might not have thought of it. And just to end this question, I know I'm going long already, but... Um, there's an old TV commercial in America, and it, it was about a juice, a vegetable juice called V8. And, and, and the ad copy line was, the guy hits himself in the forehead and said, I could have had a V8. The idea is once you think of it, you have that realization. It's been said that, and the answer is easy as long as you think of it. And that's the essence of GPT in the contents of, let's say, a differential diagnosis. If my differential diagnosis does not have one of those things that the patient has, I'm in trouble. 
because I've excluded it. So what technology is doing, it's creating a cognitive palette, a cognitive clinical palette that allows for human curation. Because if I give you a differential with the actual condition as part of the differential, chances are you're going to get it, or at least someone on the team is going to get it. So I think that it's not cheating. It is a natural extension of getting a second opinion. In this instance, the second opinion is with technology. Yeah. So you mentioned in the conference fear is an obstacle to progression. So I wanted to ask, what is your perspective on this and how we can overcome this fear of AI and specifically move away from this cheating narrative in medical school? Yeah. Let's table the fear of AI for a second and go back to the cheating thing. It's not cheating. Let's go back to the old way and let's look at the traditional college term paper because that's what people really flip out about. The way a term paper is written, let's say go back three, four, five years ago, is people scraped Google, found interesting stuff, and then reworded it a little bit in their own words so that it wasn't pure plagiarism. What the hell is that? Is that cheating? Where is the intellectual honesty when you do something like that? So I look up a famous person on a search engine and then I pull a paragraph here, I pull a paragraph there, I change a few words. Is that really the highest order of, of, of writing skill and cognition? So again, I think the whole thing gets very complicated. Now, ultimately, I think that fear is probably a fundamental dynamic here. It's not just fear. It's a duality of fear and wonder. And let's go back to mankind's first technology. So mankind's first technology, at least I would argue it is, that people have different opinions, but I would say that fire is our first or one of our first technologies. And think about what fire did. Fire allowed us to migrate, to move, to stay up at night, to light our cave or our house. It allowed us to cook food, which is really interesting because it allowed us to eat protein and protein grew our brains, right? So really fundamentally interesting things, but it also allowed us to burn down our enemy's house or throw firebombs and use it as a weapon. So those are the old days of fire. And, and what people would do that sit around and then talk about how can we control this fire. Okay. And I want you to think about this. I want you to use the same sentence that you use today. How can we control AI? How can we manage this not taking over us? And, and just use that, but substitute fire because the discussion was very similar in the sense that fire was this all powering destructive force. The interesting thing is fire is still the leading cause of property damage in the world. So we haven't eliminated the risk, but we put it into a conceptual framework. But the interesting thing here is fire has a duality. It's a duality of wonder and fear. And, and we see it in every type of invention. If it's not fire, how about the airplane? Think about the early days of the airplane, 1917. Some guy with his goggles comes on and, and lands in your wheat field and, and says, come on, let's go for a ride. He says, you know what? Bring the kids. No way, right? It's the coolest thing I ever saw, but I'm not getting in it. Same idea of wonder. We see this with the airplane. People are still extraordinarily afraid of flying, but flying today is the safest form of transportation. And now the driverless car is a really great example of that because that completely flips people out. Number one, whenever I'm in London, I can't even drive because you guys are doing it backwards. Right. So for me, <laughs> I'd argue that they so, say so, you guys are doing about well, you go either way on that. But Shafi Ahmed, who spoke really great yeah. later and thinker. So he picks me up in his Tesla. OK, so number one, we're, we're on the wrong side of the street. OK, wrong. I put that in quotes. 
Number two, the driver's steering wheel is on the wrong side of the car also. So here I am, an American, sitting in a car without a steering wheel and on the wrong side of the street. So the experience for me of being without that steering wheel was very interesting. In fact, there are several times where I put my foot on the brake. I actually pushed it because I thought a brake was there. But that's the duality that we see in the driverless car, that sense of wonder and fear. It's never going to go away. Now, here's where we are with artificial intelligence. Arguably, artificial intelligence is one of the most profound and transformative aspects of our digital transformation. Almost by definition, the bigger the innovation, the bigger the fear. So here we are, we're sitting at this profound duality and it's not defined, it's not resolved, it's not mitigated, we are in the throes of that. So I think that's where a lot of people are in clinical medicine, that they're fearful of this from a variety of perspectives. And not only from an emotional perspective of, I'm the smart, I'm the cardiologist, I'm the neurologist, I'm the neurosurgeon, I'm the smartest guy around. You think I'm gonna to listen to that little box or listen to my phone? So from a psychological perspective, but also from a functional perspective, can I trust a patient's life with this? Can I truly look the other way clinically and rely on that information when my gut is telling me something different? So, so that's, we are not at, we are, we're at the beginning of that journey. And I think that's where part of that problem is. And, you know, from a marketing perspective, it's called an adoption sequence. You know, we have early adopters, mid adopters, and late adopters. And we are seeing to a certain degree, the early adopter with some of this technology. And just as well as anybody, medicine is full of a bunch of old farts, but that's good. That's a good thing because they are learned, scholarly men and women who are built on a methodological practice. And when it comes down to this, what's really interesting about this is that the biggest pushback I get from a, a clinician, even in conversation, I say, have you tried that new echo stethoscope? Or have you tried that new algorithm that, that reads the chest, chest x-ray first? And they say, I don't do it. Why? And here it comes. This is the quote. That's not the way I was trained. And that is such a powerful dynamic. And there's a book. And I even ended by talking with this quote, but we can just jump right to it because I think it's so powerful. Alvin Toffler in 1970, feels like a lifetime ago now, wrote a book called Future Shock. And he said, the illiterate of this century will not be those who cannot read or write. Remember, we defined illiteracy centuries ago by reading, reading and writing. The illiterate of this century will be those who cannot unlearn and relearn. And that's, I think you're seeing that in medicine. It's like the stethoscope. Stethoscope hasn't really changed in 150 years since Lynette, the French physician, used a, a, a hollow tube. Even today, physicians feel that there's something intimate about leaning into a patient, just leaning in and placing that stethoscope on the chest. It becomes a very human moment. And we rely upon our ear, and that's, that in of itself has such poor quality resolution. Have you ever heard of one, one over six systolic ejection murmur? Come on, tell me the truth. It's hard, right? I've heard it on YouTube, but not in, yeah, not in the Yeah, you're there yeah. in the row, no. or a click murmur, a mitral valve prolapse click, or an S3 gallop in congestive heart failure. These are signs that 
that are well-established and clinically important. But the reality is if I have to rely on my ear to hear that's really, it's not going to happen. But if I could rely on amplification and I can actually see on my phone, the lub dub click, if I can see it, I'm using a much more powerful part of my CPU, my visual cortex. And the interesting thing is most auscultation, at least upon first round on, a, on an early clinical exam, is a rumor. Think about that. I think I heard the murmur. And then I said, I think. Then all of a sudden somebody writes it in the chart and then everybody hears the murmur. It's like that game of telephone. I think that people find comfort in the way they were taught. And, and that's what, that's part of the issue around digital convergence and it's yeah. hard to break those molds. The, the phrase I always hear is that's the way it's always been, which is very similar. Which is, and, can you apply that to yeah. anything? Can you apply it to anything? <laughs> that's the way it's always been? It's ludicrous. Yeah. Cars, airplanes, microwave ovens. It's no progression that way. Yeah. It's, it's probably why the healthcare system does lag 10, 15 years behind every other, other industry in terms of digital transformation. And it's a double-edged sword because on one side, the urgent need for the management of obesity, metabolic syndrome, cardiovascular disease, dementia, so many things should push us forward. Yet, conversely, it only, it's, it's a slower dynamic because I don't know, is it because lives are at stake? Because if I make a, an inappropriate or foolish clinical decision, someone loses their life. I don't know. So I, I think maybe it has, it has partially to do with that. It's also the fact in medicine, everything likes to be evidence-based and evidence-backed. So oh, come on. 10, 10 15 oh, randomized control trials. Let's go right after that. <laughs> oh, so fat, good or bad? Good, just bad. give me the evidence. Bad? Really? As opposed to carbs? A high-carb diet? So if we're talking about fat in terms of diet, yes, good. If we're talking about fat in terms of visceral area of the body and someone's containing a large amount amongst their trunk, then bad, right? You think there's a definitive body of evidence around obesity and diet? I don't think there is. So evidence-based medicine is interesting, but I'm curious, is medicine largely practiced on a functional level on the basis of evidence or on the basis of intuition that is informed by evidence? Yeah, it's purely anecdotal logs. So your experience of how different patients react yeah. to different medication, et cetera, then will guide you in the way you treat that patient. So yeah, definitely agree with that. But at an institutional level, they like to see evidence-based medicine, right? They don't want to hear anecdotal logs though. Yep. No, I agree. But sometimes it's, it always starts as an anecdotal finding. The, the development of antibiotics it was an anecdotal finding that, that was pushed forward through research. Same thing with whatever. Uh, Viagra, reptile dysfunction, yeah. was a drug for cardiovascular disease, right? It's a was PDE5 that was yeah, used phosphodiesterase yeah, yeah. to treat it was a positive inotropic agent, I think, early on. There is a bit of serendipity, but I understand that those are the practical realities of life. So you mentioned in your blog, this new transformative age of AI being likened to the second big bang. Yeah. And it feels like to me growing up in this time, we're almost standing at a crossroad. And it did remind me of the Carl Sagan quote, a pale blue dot moment, reevaluating our place and purpose in this new world. And so I wanted to start off this question by asking you, what does it mean firstly to be human in this new age? Wow. We as humans don't have a definitive worldview. My, my dog, Oliver, who's in the next room, can smell 40 times greater than I can. A bear 
since I'm out in the woods of Pennsylvania, can smell, I'm told, 3,000 times greater than I can. Our ability to see is limited to the electromagnetic spectrum. Not that I want to see infrared. I don't want to see all that. But even our ability to hear, we, we create a reality that defines humanity in a fairly myopic perspective. So I wrote something a while ago that kind of got a lot of people thinking. And I asked, I said, can technology make us more human? Because I wanted to go down the path of technology is not a substitute for humans, but technology as a tool to expand our humanity. Let's ask a simple question. Does a violin make you more human? I think it does. I wouldn't say so. I don't know, though, because why would it? I think the skill of being able to play a violin makes you more human, but I don't think the violin itself would make you more human. As a manifestation of a tool, do tools, does art make us more human? Go to the London Museum. Why would we do that? I think that... But it, it, is it the art or is it the skill of being able to create an amazing painting that makes us human? No, I don't think so. I don't. I, in fact, I think it's absolutely not the skill. And then, and we're gonna. I, I'm really glad that you raised that because I think what's happening with technology today is skill is being replaced, or actually, craft is being replaced by cognition. Where does genius live? Where does genius live? When Van Gogh did his lilies, did his paintings, where did where was that genius? What was it? Was it the painting? Was it the physical painting? No, it was an expression of his cognitive ability. Now, interestingly, when we look at that painting, we too have a cognitive expression or an a cognitive interpretation. So that, that's a really interesting thing for me because I think that what we're seeing today is that through stable diffusion and Dolly 2 and a lot of these technological platforms that the operator can create artistic beauty. Now, that's real interesting because where does that come from and who's doing it? There's a lot, and we could even, we can riff on this too a little bit, but it's really the power of the prompt that establishes the ability to create this art. If we, if we want to talk about art, it's the power of the prompt and going back to the question about cheating on your term paper, maybe the teacher should judge you on your prompt. Write a 500 word, write a 500 word or a 250 word prompt on Einstein and his interest in eclectic thinking to discover new theories. Just think about that. It's the prompt. Voltaire said something very interesting. The French philosopher, he says, judge a man not by his answers, but by his questions. And I think that that's really interesting. So I know I'm getting off, off, off base here. It's interesting because you liken AI prompts to human neurotransmitters, right? Yeah. I think there's something funky going on. I don't know what it is. I'm not willing to give up on that, right? I'm not saying that AI is alive or conscious, not at all. But I want to, I think that there is maybe an epiphenomenon. What is consciousness in the human construct? What is it? It's basically a bag of bolts, right? It's sodium and potassium and it's membranes, it's ionic flux. And somehow that turns on and that turns off. And that's consciousness. And if you've ever seen somebody die, there is a stark reality between a vital, living 
person in a dead body. What is that? And I think that we're beginning to see some of those things in, in LLMs. And that, of course, I'm pushing on this. This is not, this is more in the domain of philosophy, yeah. probably. But I still see, you talk about hallucinations in, in these large language models. There, there's a guy named Jeffrey Hinton, who was a Google researcher, the father of AI or the godfather of AI, or one of these things. And he said that they're not bugs. They're actually part of the system. And he said that humans think like that too. I think that there may be these artifacts that create something that, that is, maybe there is a, a level of technological cognition that is different than humans. And that's the other side of this equation is we always talk to say that we make the comparison to the human model. Why do we have to do that? It just seems to me like maybe there's a new model that has something that, that is different. Jeffrey talked about this in the context of confabulation. He said that they, it's not hallucinations. That was the bad word. They confabulate, they make stuff up. And interestingly, just like humans, we make up stuff all the time as a function of cognition and as a function of creativity. So I'm not sure I want to suppress hallucination, hallucinations in LLMs. There's something going on. And when I talk about this to like the really smart people who know what's going on, they just scratch their head. And just say, yeah, it's cool, but I don't know what to make of it. And we default to a very conservative position. What we default to is we default to the dead human body. In other words, we default to the lifeless system versus the system that in some way is animated with a vitality that is mediated by electricity. That's like the body in a way. Who knows which way this is going to go? I'm sure people are going to look at this and think I'm an absolute lunatic, but it's just too interesting not to. And so you suggested at, actually, you, po you posed a very interesting statement that humans and machines will dance together. And you said that the question is actually who will lead. Yeah, and it reminded me of the singularity and a, a proposing a future where humans and AI obviously merge. And so elaborate on this vision. What does it mean well, for us future physicians? That was a spontaneous, that wasn't even, that's something I didn't have that in my bag of tricks. It makes you think, and it, it, the next thing that matters is it was very much spontaneous in the context of the discussion we were having. And the idea was that uh, many people have talked about the, the cooperative path forward. When you go back to clinical care, back in the old days, the doctor was king. And I'm, I'm even going to say he was the king, right? He defined care paths and, and you did what he said. Then, then we got this whole idea of integrated care where we had a oh, respiratory therapist and a mental health worker. And then we got the spouse involved and, and became this whole notion of integrated care. And uh, integrated care that's optimized is in essence a dance, right? It's, it's not rigidly defined. It's, it's a ballet of cardiologists speaking with mental health professionals, creating this, this amorphous living thing. So this dance to me is like where we're going with technology, that there is a dance. Now in traditional dancing, if you want to do a foxtrot or a, a ballroom dance, there is a leader and it's defined. And the whole one, two, three is defined by leadership. I think that with AI and with technology, it is exactly like that amorphous leadership that happens in patient care. 
when you have a patient with multiple conditions, with social issues, with family issues, who leads? Who leads? That's a stupid question. It, the person who leads or the thing that leads very well may be in certain instances the data, right? If the guy has a, a CPK or a, a isoenzyme, an MB um, enzyme that's high, that kind of leads the day because the guy's having a heart attack. But if depression is the insurmountable obstacle to get this person to take their meds, maybe the psychiatrist or psychologist leads. To ask that question, as, as interesting as it might be, I don't think anyone leads. I think that the lead is a evolving dynamic that has to align with a certain situation, just like in clinical medicine. Clinical medicine is a dance. Who leads? It depends. And that's how I would answer that question. I know that's, that's more ambiguity, but I yeah. that's going to be the nature of our engagement. Some people talk about artificial intelligence as IA, intelligence augmented. And I think that we will get to that and we may get to that asymptote. We may get to Ray Kurzweil's singularity. In many ways, I think that we've passed it. There's lots of data that show these models can, can do better than humans. You mentioned Voltaire earlier, the French philosopher, and he said something along the lines of the job of a physician is actually just entertaining the patient. Uh -huh. And it is nature's and science's job to do the magic of healing the patient. And my interpretation of that in this new digital age is actually that AI will be the one, the jester, entertaining the patient with this fast response times, the quick clinical pathways, and it will be the job of the physician at the end of that pathway and science and clinical medicine to be healing that patient. But still in that pathway, you could argue that the physician is still leading in a sector where human touch and judgment is paramount. So how do we ensure that humans continue to lead and we don't get machines leading in healthcare? Let's back up because I think you've touched on something that's really interesting. When my wife comes home from the pediatrician, when my child is sick, let's say, hypothetically, we're not doing a telemedicine visit. We're actually going to go to the doctor, <laughs> right? The first question I ask is, so what did the doctor say? So what did the doctor say? That's going to change. I think the dynamic is going to be, so what did the computer say? Is going to be the question. In other words, the information, the differential, the disease, the prescription, the optimal clinical path forward will be articulated by technology in the computer. But here, that's not the end of the sentence. There's a comma there. Because the second part of the doc, the second part of that will be what did the doctor do? So yes, absolutely. The implementation of care will be provided by the human construct. Now, this is where it gets interesting because what would you rather have? Would you rather have a respiratory therapist, okay, with an augmented AI capability, whatever that is, let's just leave that undefined for now, taking care of your emphysema or your cystic fibrosis, or would you rather have a pulmonologist? See, I think that AI will actually evolve and change the very nature of these roles. It'll also evolve the nature of the care team. So I'm gonna have a, a nurse technologically empowered. I'm gonna have a primary care physician who can be technologically empowered along one particular disease modality, if you will. So I think that's gonna change. Now, what's the biggest complaint physicians have today? 
Again, I, you don't have to answer because I don't want to get you in trouble. I was going to say probably waiting time. Yeah, time. I prime time. If only I had more time with my patient, right? That's if I have seven minutes to do a history physical and make them feel good, right? To sit down and say, Mrs. Smith, how you doing? Here's the dirty little secret. I don't think that Dr. X really wants to spend 20 minutes of unnecessary chit chat with my Aunt Lily. Now, I know that kind of, that, that hurts a little bit. It's controversial. So the irony here is that while technology will give physicians more time with their patients, it very well may not be the thing that they want, or yeah. it very well may not be the thing that optimizes the nature of the relationship. But I still think that care is in the hands of the physician, that laying on of hands. I think that there is a human component here. And what we're seeing is the cognitive capacity and the human capacity are in flux. And, and I, I wonder, that worries me a little bit because I think that clinical medicine in many instances has been defined by the cognitive prowess of the doctor, the smartest person in the room. Maybe now it's going to be defined by the most empathic patient in the world. There are three parameters now. There's IQ, right? You gotta be smart. There's EQ, you have to be empathic. Now there's also teach you. There's technology quotient and your ability to assimilate technology into your practice, into your life. If you're a mom who has to homeschool kids because of a pandemic, your ability to use Zoom is pretty important. So technology quotient will be kind of part of that mix, but I think ultimately that there is that human component. Now you can build that into technology. We can create AI that has intrinsic qualities or features baked into it. And that goes back to Isaac Asimov's three rules for robots. I actually rewrote that and did the rules of AI according to Isaac Asimov. Interesting stuff. It is interesting because there was a study that obviously compared ChatGPT to doctors yeah. and how empathetic they were. And it got some criticism because there was questions whether ChatGPT was actually more empathetic than doctors or if it's the fact that ChatGPT had a limitless time period where it can re-explain stuff to patients. If a patient didn't understand this, it could take its time and explain it in a different way. And so... What are your thoughts on this? I think you nailed it. I think you nailed it. Physicians are put under tremendous pressure to perform, right? Those pressures are oftentimes life or death. They're financial pressures. They're basic time pressures. There's this whole issue of physician burnout. When I ask the doctor, what should I do for my sore throat? And she says to me, finish your antibiotic, right? That's the answer, right? But if a machine tells me, John, Thank you for that fascinating question. Sore throats can be problematic. Maybe you can help by garbling with salt water or trying some aspirin. But most importantly, remember to take your blah, blah, blah. The verbosity of that, I think, was killer. That's exactly where yeah. it went. My mom doesn't really care what the doctor said. She cares how the doctor said it. If the doctor holds her hands and says, Rose, let me tell you about, let me tell you what we're going to do. That is more powerful than... Rose, this is what we're going to do. And there is a sense of, there's, a, there's an aspirational sense to it. Let's talk about Martin Luther King. Let's go completely off topic here. If Martin Luther King stood in front of all those hundreds of thousands of people and said, I have a plan, they would have walked away. But 
He said, I have a dream. He put it in an aspirational context. And that's the same thing with patients. When you're talking about patients, I have a vision, Rose. I have a vision where your congestive heart failure is going to be made better and you can play with your grandchildren. Versus, I have a plan. We're going to put you on a new med. You know, it's different. Yeah. So there's a lot of interesting things. Ultimately, whatever I say about humans probably can be copied by AI. So that's a looming issue. That is, as we cling to humanity as like a baby blanket, I think we will begin to see, just like the study with ChatGPT, there was an element of compassion there. So we can't discard that finding. I think that there was an intrinsic bias to it. But was the bias on behalf of the GPT or was the bias on behalf of the way humans assimilate information? So it was a really, and that, that was a kind of a click, clickbait story, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And I saw an interesting thread on Reddit, which was talking about doctors now using ChatGPT to structure their consultations when breaking bad news. And when I saw that, it was interesting because if you do, if you take a step back and you look at the whole perspective, it's interesting now that we're at the point where we have clinicians, rather than consulting with other clinicians, how they approach these difficult conversations that are actually going to ChatGPT because they find they're getting better responses. And so it's obviously going to be coming more and more into practice and it's something that needs to be normalized yeah. and more doctors starting to be happy. Yeah. You hit the word on the head, right? It's got to be normalized. Here, yeah. another, I want to I push on that a little bit because I think, again, you've hit on a salient issue. So you're always right on top of, on top of the facts. So I, I, I applaud that. We have something as humans called an inner monologue, right? And that yeah. inner monologue is a very powerful tool where we think and we may play out scenarios in our head. The next jump to that is, let's say, a dialogue, a peer-to-peer -peer dialogue, right? That's, you talk with a peer about, I have a patient who is, has, oh, I don't know, metastatic cancer, and I'm looking at, and should I go to, into immunology, expensive therapies to give that person one more month of life? How do I manage this? How do I discuss this with the patient? This first starts as an inner monologue. The next level of this in the clinical course is a dialogue with a peer, oftentimes, right? It varies a little bit, but I think there's an interim step here, and this is exactly what you're talking about. I can now use GPT to have a modulated interaction. It's not a monologue, it's a dialogue, whatever you want to call it, but I can actually have a personal, confidential, Socratic iterative dialogue. How cool is that? I can't have a really rich Socratic dialogue with a peer or a colleague because they'll probably judge me or, or there might be some ethnic or social or cultural issue. So GPT, I think, offers a physician the ability, especially if we go to the large, the LLMs that are supported by clinical data. There's the initial corpus and then you add on top of that a substantial medical corpus that's a wonderful opportunity for me to discuss, think, and iterate care on a level before it gets pushed out into the clinical arena. And that's really powerful. I'm really excited about that. Again, that's freaky. It's like asking the doctor to have a, a private conversation yeah. with GPT. I do it all the time. I, I published a story a little while ago about, about my morning ritual is a cup of coffee, and I try to learn something from GPT. And John, as we close up the conversation, the title of your talk you gave at Intelligent Health was Humanity at a Tipping Point. And so 
I wanted to ask you, do you believe we're prepared to navigate this tipping point? No. And this, the key word is responsibly as well. No, I don't think we're prepared. You, let's go back just one, one couple minutes and talk about the Big Bang. Carl Sagan's reference was about us being part of a broader reality, almost lost in a sea, in this vast, expansive sea that actually diminishes the role of humanity. I think that's what Carl Sagan was saying, that we're a dot in the universe. I think that the moment today is the converse of that. We are actually at that big bang of creation, at the very center where our cognitive capabilities combined with AI creates that exponential change. We talk about exponential. It's not even exponential anymore because we're stacking exponential on top of exponential. Yeah. Just a line up. Go straight up. What is that? And as I said at the talk, if you divide by zero, you get infinity. So it's tricky. But going back to your question, I think that we are prepared to be prepared. And I think as long as we're having these dialogues and we're looking at other models like even drug development, phase one, phase two, phase three, maybe there's phase one, phase two, phase three software. These prohibitions on the development of AI may be appropriate. But the prohibition was only up to GPT-4 in that, in what Sam Altman was talking about. No, we're in, we are in no man's land. We are uncharted territory and the rate with which things are changing is extraordinary. That's why I choose to be a techno optimist because we are, there's a movie opening this month, probably in England too, on Oppenheimer, right? Robert yeah. Oppenheimer. I think that I've compared Sam Altman to Robert Oppenheimer because I think that we are at this point where we've created this thing, the genie is out of the bottle, and that genie is AI, and it's up to us to create some sort of a regulatory pathway. And it's critical, and it's profound, and it truly is the most transformative time in the history of humanity. And what steps do you think we need to take at a local level? Obviously, we're talking about regulatory body or pathway or guidelines that are going to be formed around big businesses, big corporations like OpenAI, Microsoft, but at a localized level, what can people do so that we're ready for this tipping point? That's an interesting question because there's two paths to follow here. There's the path of dealing with these big LLMs and, and living in the sea of, of OpenAI, but some people are talking about personalized AI now where the LLM actually becomes unique to you. It lives on your computer. It doesn't go anywhere. And you can layer in your personal information, your chat history, whatever corpus of information, your medical data, and then it becomes something that doesn't go to the cloud. It becomes very unique and very personal. And that may be one interesting path forward. I just I can't, can't get my head around the idea of, so what should yeah. you do? Should we put an embargo on, on the EU and say, don't do AI while China moves along and then trumps us? Yeah, no, you can't. You, you can't stop it. The proverbial horse is out of the barn or whatever. The, tooth, the toothpaste is out of the tube. And it's, it is a big deal. It's a big issue. And I think we're going to wallow our way through it for a little bit. This is a super interesting discussion that Sam Altman have had with Lex Friedman. 
and they were speaking about GPT-4 and Lex Friedman's of the opinion that he he was considering the fact it is actually conscious and we're past that point now. We've already passed that tipping point. Well, that's the beginning yeah. of, our, of our talk, right? Is this an epiphenomenon? Why don't we have techno-consciousness? Can we talk about consciousness in the context of AI itself, not trying to superimpose it on the human construct, the anthropomorphization of AI, the force fit into humanity, doesn't seem to make sense. Yeah, that that was a really good discussion. And, Definitely. Um, there's so many interesting people on this podcast, but we are actually getting to the point where AI is creating a reality that is so profoundly seductive to us that we are becoming narcissists. The Greek mythology guy who saw his reflection in the lake and fell in love with it and died, couldn't move. And that's what's happening now. We're seeing selfies and we're seeing social media that contrives a reality to us that we are so in love with it that it's becoming irresistible. So for me, those are the really big and interesting issues that are emerging. Yeah, John, it's been amazing having you. Thank you so much for coming on. If you could leave us with one line something that you find immensely interesting, a call to action for listeners to research or have a look at, what would you suggest? Wow. There, there, there's so many interesting areas to, to go to. I think that let's go back to Hindu scripture. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tear a page out of Robert Oppenheimer, who said that I had become death and destroyer of worlds. But I'm going to use another line, and that is, as we think, so we act. As we act, so we become. And to me, what that means is the world is becoming a cognitive construct. And that cognitive partner is AI. But ultimately, the new Van Goghs and the new movies and the new special effects all come from here, come from our head. So I think thinking is going to become a very powerful tool just as the thinking machine advances, so will humanity. Fantastic. John, it's been amazing having you. you we'll be back. Come back in a few months. We've got to do it again because everything will have changed probably, right? Yeah, everything. <laughs> yes. It, everything will be completely different in a few months. So I look forward to our, to our conversation in a couple of months. My pleasure.